0: The Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome Symposium will be held in Sydney on Sunday, the 16th of September, 2018. This ATMS special event will bring together five diversely qualified speakers offering new insights into diagnosis and treatment of PCOS. For more information and to book your tickets, please go to atms.com.au and click on the Events tab. This is FX Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Leah Heckman, who's an ultimately experienced and respected clinician who specialises in fertility, pregnancy, and reproductive health for men and women. She's completed extensive advanced training and is a university lecturer, keynote speaker, author, and educator to her peers. Leah is currently completing her PhD through the School of Women's and Children's Health, Faculty of Medicine, University of New South Wales in Sydney. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Leah. How are you? I'm well,
1: Andrew. Thanks for having me.
0: Today, we're going to be talking about predicting fertility in polycystic ovarian syndrome, something you'll be speaking at the ATMS symposium later on uh, this year in Australia. But just as a review, can you take us through a little bit about Um, polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, I guess, especially in Australia. What's the purported incidence and what are the diagnostic issues that are facing it?
1: Absolutely. So at the moment, I think that statistics, we're looking at about one in 10 women, but we're in a situation where it's been extremely overdiagnosed. So we have used three different criteria to make the diagnosis of PCOS. The Rotterdam, the Androgen Excess um, Institute um and NIH. And the problem is is that all three of them are fairly dated. The Rotterdam criteria is the only one that's had amendments to it and has been looked at a little bit more extensively, but you still have way too many women out there that are diagnosed as having the syndrome when they just have multiple cysts on their ovaries. Right. Or they have multiple follicles really, you know, their antral follicle count is excessive. And I was speaking to a colleague of mine the other day and the new technology in all the sonography units now They've had to change the criteria, but the diagnostics haven't caught up. So all the new ultrasound units can actually detect follicle counts you know, in, in the 30s, and it's completely normal. And they're now saying that PCOS is really only if you're using the latest technology and your AFC is more than 25 per ovary, which means that we've been diagnosing all these women when it's more than 10 per ovary. And they haven't actually changed the criteria, even though they've got new
0: technology. Right, right. So we're able to see more, and we're still diagnosing as if we couldn't see more.
1: Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So you've got you know statistics saying it's one in ten. I think that's a lot of rubbish. <laughs> I don't think it's that high at all. Um, yeah. Best I guess. Think, be? Well, I think we're overlapping in a lot of conditions, you know. And you know that I'm a, a little bit interested in endometriosis. Yes. I think that you know the incidence of endo is one in ten, and I think the incidence of endo with PCOS. I think we're probably looking at one in 15. So, and I think that PCOS, it depends, you know, how much of it is just everyone's overweight and has a crap diet and all that, and how much of it is actually true syndrome, you know, where there's genetic um, markers that correlate with actually having an abnormality here.
2: Yeah. I think
1: the latter is actually quite a small percentage, um, and I think the rest of it, you know, maybe if we look at true, true PCOS, I think we're probably looking at maybe one in
0: 40 women. Right. So let's talk about these biomarkers then. What new biomarkers are available? You normally, you know, we'd look at, you know, even apple-shaped obesity with cardiovascular issues and, and um, a- excess androgens. The apple-shaped obesity is a load of rubbish because thin people can, thin women can get polycystic ovarian syndrome, I'm gathering. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, they
1: can get on any of it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So what are the novel biomarkers? What should we be looking at?
1: Well, okay, so the Rotterdam criteria, even in as early as 2007, um, Professor Norman, Robert Norman, who's going to be speaking at the symposium, he's, he's wonderful, and he released a paper where he actually said, that's it, we can all use AMH as a diagnostic for PCOS. And that fit with the research around where AMH was at at the time. So we're talking about antimalarian hormone where the average assay cuts off at 30 and a woman that has an AMH greater than 30, you basically say she's got PCOS. Whether or not that's entirely true, that's part of what I'm doing in the PhD. Um, if my supervisor's listen to this, then yes, it is true. <laughs> but if not, I'm not 100% sure. Um, but it, it's one of those situations where they're using AMH as a diagnostic now. So it basically, if you have a woman that comes in and you su- suspect that she has PCOS, rather than getting down the whole you know, you know the, that slippery slide into let's look at androgens and do um, quantification and all sorts of different things. It's basically you just test her AMH. If it's greater than 30, she has PCOS. I don't know that I entirely agree with it, but certainly if a woman presents and she's got an AMH of 157, yes, she's got PCOS.
2: Right.
1: Remember AMH, it's basically the communication between the ovary and the brain. And so if the AMH is pumping and it's going at really, really high levels, the FSH is really non-functioning. So the anterior pituitary, you know, like I always joke with patients, I say the PCOS woman, she's stuck in third gear. You know, first gear is the release of FSH, second gear is the release of estrogen by the ovary, third gear is the release of LH by the anterior pituitary. When her AMH is that high, she's stuck in third gear. The FSH is just not secreting, yep. and that's why her, you know, her ratio is so distorted. Um, you can use that as a diagnostic. You can do the FSH to LH ratio. So in a situation where normal, healthy women, it's an FSH to LH of 2 to 1. If the LH is higher, then obviously you know that that's pretty much um, one of the criteria for PCO um, confirmation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Otherwise, you're looking obviously at all your androgens and things like that. But the exciting stuff that I'm working with at the moment with um, part of the study is we're looking at these new novel biomarkers. So we're looking at BMP15 and GDF9. And what we're starting to see is Essentially, we're looking at two main populations. We're looking at the polycystic ovarian syndrome women and we're looking at the premature ovarian failure women, so both extremes. And we're seeing a direct correlation in the numbers of the BMP15 and the GDF9 that can certainly tell us what's actually happening in the ovary. Because all these other markers are just telling us, you know, like AMH is just telling us the the antral follicle count essentially or the pre-antral follicle count. It's giving us a snapshot as to what's happening there, but it's not telling us the quality, it's not telling us the ovarian function, and it fluctuates for many, many different reasons. But the BMP15 and the GDF9 are actually seeing very, very marked stability there, and it gives a really good assessment as to what's going on for the woman and actually what her fertility potential is. So it's pretty cool.
0: GDF9, I'm, I'm imagining, is gonadotropin something. BMP um, 15. And also, are we looking at, do we need to be aware of cyclical changes here?
1: With respect to the BMP or the GDF9 or which part?
0: With any of the biomarkers. You're talking about um, with anti-malarial hormone, the woman is stuck in third gear, but she's not stuck in full gear all through her cycle, correct?
1: Well, AMH, when you look at and we've got fairly good data now because we've been using the assay for a long time. Mm. We did have a glitch with the assay, and it's only in the last five years that I think we can trust the information.
2: Right. Because
1: there was a stability problem. So anyone that was tested, um, had their AMH levels tested more than five years ago, there was a thirty percent level of inaccuracy. Wow. Where it was, yeah, and a false that, positive. Many women made very drastic fertility decisions where they were told that their AMH was thirty percent lower than what it really was.
0: A lower, so a false negative. False negative. Wow,
1: I still think of one patient where I counselled her around it, and she had non un- non-detected, and I still wonder to this day was it real or not. Right, it's, it's one of those. You know those patients that are always sit on your shoulder. Yeah, um, <laughs> she's one of those. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: yeah, so it's it's a situation where you know AMH they say now is fairly stable throughout the whole cycle, but if you're on the contraceptive pill, it can lower it by as much as thirty forty thirty to forty percent. Mm. If um, you know the accuracy is certainly better at the beginning of the cycle, so day two or day three, um, and that certainly makes it much more predictable. And certainly, all the other hormones you do it on day two or day three. Whereas the new markers, we're finding that there's no change within the cycle. Um, there's no fluctuation, but there's fairly good accuracy that the number that it produces can give you a really good indication as to what's actually going on.
0: So BMP15, bone morphogenetic protein, is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay, take us through what this is. What's its relevance?
1: So basically, what this is really, really very new research. So it's certainly not an assay that anyone can request from a pathology lab. We're, we're in the early research stages. Yep. Um, but what we're dealing with here are two molecules that we know that is secreted by the ovary. So the AMH itself is not secreted by the ovary. It's secreted by the pre-antral follicle. So we don't necessarily get an accurate picture as to what's going on versus now with this we can actually see this is what the ovary is secreting and when the levels are dwindling it can give us a better idea as to what's actually going on inside
0: and gdf9 now i said gonadotropin it's oh. wrong
1: no not gonadotropin
0: <laughs> growth differentiation they're, factor. They're,
1: they're all growth hormones basically yeah yeah, and they are secreted by other tissues in the body, but there is a heavy concentration in the ovary.
0: Okay, so you say that these are heavily in the research domain at the moment. What do practitioners do now, particularly to, you know, thwart over-diagnosing polycystic ovarian syndrome? What should we be looking at?
1: Well, I think it's a really good point. Um, at the moment, I think, you know, I'm highlighting the research because we know where medicine is going, we mm. know the direction, and we know that we'll get more accurate information. But certainly at the moment, I think... It's important to, when a person's sitting in front of you, look over what has been tested, what time of the cycle it's been tested, and use your clinical judgment to actually work out, is this actually an overdiagnosis, a misdiagnosis, or a true diagnosis? And if it is a true diagnosis, then, I mean, Lara did that wonderful talk, and she's going to be talking at the conference as well. You know, you can classify the type of PCOS and then be much more strategic with your treatment. But, you know, so many times women walk in my room and I'm just like, you don't have PCOS. Mm-hmm. What's going on here? You know, and they're like, no, 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 blah, blah, blah. And they're put on metformin. They're, some of them are pushed into ovarian drilling. Some of them are put on antidepressants. Like, there's a whole host of different medical interventions that they're moved towards. And they have the fear of God in them that yeah. they have to be on the pill and they have to be on metformin because otherwise they're never going to have a baby, but they never actually had PCOS in the first place.
0: When we're looking at the physical characteristics that patients present with, we know Mm. that apple-shaped obesity, that's out. That may be Mm. important in some, but it's certainly not in all. Can we rely on any physical characteristic, like, say, for instance, hirsutism? Can we rely on any one sort of thing to point us or at least to alert us to go, there's something else going on here?
1: Look, I think if you if you have a woman in front of you with hirsutism, with acne, with um, weight gain that's really stubborn, with an absence of periods, you know, with a, uh, blood sugar irregularities, they're forming the picture that yes is suggesting that PCOS is there, and then you can look into it a bit more deeply. But and you certainly weren't saying this, but to suggest that every woman that has hirsutism has PCOS is so simplistic. Yes, and I actually find it quite racist. Like I have a lot of women that present that have various. Um, Upbringings and ethnicities that increase their facial hair growth, but it's, they have nothing to do with PCOS gotcha. or high androgens, for that matter. So I think that it's just important to really look at it carefully, um, and definitely, you know, the apple-shaped woman idea is out. So is the obese woman out, and so is the very thin woman out. Mm. So any woman of any shape can get it, and I do think that you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of positive theories from you know the various body shapes. Like Professor John Eden's theory, which I've, you know, I've really leaned into a lot over the years. His idea that women who are very thin and when they go into um, a famine state that they can still ovulate, that supports why they could potentially have PCOS. The women where they're very overweight, you know, a lot of Joe Pizzorno's theories around um, heavy metal exposure and environmental pollutants, he really believes that PCOS is just environmental aspects. Um, You know, we're writing the PCOS chapter for the fifth edition of his textbook at the moment. And Mm. he's like, no, no, we just focus on environmental. (laughs) I'm like, Joe, no, we can't just focus on environmental. There's other aspects.
0: But it
1: could theoretically be that. And we might find that out to be the case.
0: What about things like um, with regards to polycystic ovarian syndrome and fertility issues, which is obviously why many women start to investigate um, this is a possible diagnosis. What about ovarian reserve?
1: Mm. I think the biggest thing that is, has always been a, a real aha moment for me is that you have the classic PCOS woman with a high AMH. If we believe entirely that that's exactly what that is, yeah, she has a drop off of eggs. And the thing is, is that the PCOS woman is often miscounseled, and she's often in a, she's lulled into a false sense of security of I have really high AMH. Time won't run out on me. But what we understand now is that she still has a blueprint for when menopause will happen. And her menopausal age isn't usually any later than the woman without PCOS. It's just that she has this high AMH, this high follicle response, but then she's still classically going through menopause at the same age. So the woman with AMH of 120 at 42 thinks she's fine, but she's not. And that's something that I think as clinicians, we need to be quite careful around and we need to counsel our patients around Mm. because too many doctors are saying to them "Your amh is fine don't worry about it
0: the age of genetics is upon us and genetic testing is now available do (laughs) you find any link here with things like compt or methylation do you find any pictures evolving
1: i do see lots of different patterns with it um i definitely see a lot of I I just call them glitches Mm. in, you know, like transalcuration pathway and glutathione production and all of the liver metabolism of all the hormones. I find that that doesn't work very well and lots of, um, you know, issues in all of the genes around that. I do tend to see an under-methylation picture more prevalent, so a a SAMI production decline and obviously a SAM:SA ratio issue that goes with it. And so then typically, you know, the comp gene precedes all of that. Um, Definitely methylation, I mean... It's one of those ones with methylation that, you know, we all prescribe B vitamins for God knows how long and now we're just much more specific with it. And I think that's always going to be the case. You know, if you get someone's B vitamin status right and the more genetic information you have, the more specific you can be, Hmm. the more you are going to help every problem. But definitely, you know, tidying up methylation reduces inflammation and we know that PCOS is an inflammatory condition.
0: Going back to the days when we didn't even consider genetic SNPs. We, di- we didn't, mm. didn't think about them. Is there? Have you ever looked at a comparison of patients, let's say 10, 15 years ago, compared to now and the supplements that were available back then versus mm-hmm. the supplements that are available now? Have you ever thought or has anything twigged in your mind about, mm, I saw some similarities there or, gee, I'm seeing some vast differences in treatment outcomes um, with regards to the newer available, let's call them active B vitamins?
1: I'm seeing genetic differences. I'm seeing differences. If, if There's a few reasons for, for it. I always think that, God, if I could treat the people I treated 20 years ago, they'd be so much better. But, you know, we treat the people at the right time and, you know,
0: all that stuff. That's all you got to stuff. work with, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's what you've got to work with. you know. But you know, there'll still be those patients that, that niggle in the back of your mind that you didn't quite nail or that you didn't help the way that you wanted to. And I think if I could treat them now, God, I'd make so much more difference. But I can't get over the speed of my results now by having the genetic information and the methylation information with outcome. You know, like patients that may have taken me six or nine months to get pregnant can now take me three months. That's a huge difference in time and it's also, you know, lowered incidence of miscarriage, like you know, like PCOS women, for example, really high incidence of miscarriage because the eggs are so much older and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, you could get them pregnant, but you maybe couldn't shorten their cycle to less than six weeks, say fifteen years ago. Whereas now I can get their cycle down under thirty weeks, no problem. And so their incidence of miscarriage has dropped off. So there's huge differences in treatment outcome. I think it's Incredibly powerful, and I'm really excited to see what's going to happen in the next five or ten years Mm. because I think our treatment responses are going to improve even more so. We're just getting much more individualised and specialised, and I think that our naturopathic treatment is is really leaps ahead of where the diagnostics are in that sense where PCOS, I think, is still too simplified in the mainstream community.
0: You love using traditional Chinese medicine, especially herbs, in your treatment. Mm. Do you ever find that the TCM treatments have an explanation with today's modern understanding of SNPs genetics and that sort of thing? Or do you just think, well, no, it was the energetic? You have to look at it in an energetic way.
1: No, I do. I really do. And I do find that I can use the energetics of herbs or any of my other treatments, homeopathics or anything like that, and they'll give me answers that connect and correlate with the genetic information really well. Mm. And I think it's just getting much more individualized and specific about things. And I think when you dig really deep into traditional Chinese medicine and you go beyond you know the, the the initial level of information, you really get into the spiritual stuff, that's where you can start to get some really fascinating outcomes in treatment, and that certainly has a correlation and you can match the types of people with the types of genetic profiling as well.
0: You mentioned before about writing a chapter with Joe Pizzorno um, in the textbook of natural medicine with regarding environmental issues. And, um, I, you know, I think I, I agree with you that, you know, to put it all in one basket might be a little bit <laughs> of a strong opinion, but, but certainly it's got to be playing an important part, yes, with polycystic ovarian Yeah,
1: absolutely. Look, I mean, the research that Joe's doing, and I mean, he's pretty much dedicated his life to this now. And, I mean, hats off to him. What he's found is just alarming. And I think that, you know, all of his research around heavy metal exposure, environmental pollutants, all those sorts of substances and what we're actually doing with our environmental exposure, I think, is having a huge impact on fertility. And we've seen that. Um, but certainly with the incidence of PCOS. And, you know, he looks at it and simplifies it and goes, okay, women, weight, sugars, PCOS, yep, that's going to be environmental. and Pretty much, it is, let's be honest. So, I mean, if you can get all these women to lose weight if they are overweight, if you can normalize their sugar receptors and get rid of the arsenic or the cadmium or whatever it might be,
2: Mm. um,
1: you do have a much more stabilizing effect. But I think one thing that we have to factor in with the environmental aspect is the trigenerational impact. And I think that, you know, when you look at some of that genetic research that's come out looking at, you know, what your maternal grandmother did and how that influences your reproductive fitness that's where we're seeing huge information um, coming up right now about PCOS incidents. So uh, I don't know if you know listeners are aware of um, probably one of the biggest studies was the Dutch famine study where they did the three generations of women and they looked at um, women who ha- were going through World War II through famine and how they um, lost their fertility when they had gone through all the starvation. They then regained it after the war. Then their daughters had um, significant difficulty with breastfeeding and their granddaughters had significant difficulty with fertility. But they've kept going, looking at that information, and they're now seeing the PCOS incidence increasing in the fourth generation. So, wow. Yeah.
0: So it's a quad-generational, so, not a tri-generational. Yeah,
1: no impact. longer just tri. They're now thinking quad. So whatever is going through the maternal line to environmental exposure, I mean, that was specifically looking at you know starvation and famine. Mm. But you know, I'm a bit nervous about what's going to happen to our daughters um, we know what's happening to our sons, you know, from an environmental perspective, with all the sperm count reduction, yeah. but perhaps this is the environmental translation in women, you know, the equivalent of the sperm count reduction, we're having the polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, essentially, it's making women not have periods and not be fertile, and potentially that's what it's actually doing. And is it that it's environmental exposure that they've had, or is it multigenerational? And I think it's a bit of both
0: are we seeing any of these correlations with male to females, um, with regards to any of these reproductive type issues in, you know, in male sperms going down, there's, you know, several series theories still floating around about, you know, is it population density, which I I wonder about if, how you could explain that one, but, um, (laughs) you know, then you've got pollutants and things like that. Like, has anybody thrown any any research into looking at males versus females and the fertility impacts?
1: I've seen some, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, so jump in if I'm not, but I have seen some research correlating um, the incidence of male fertility parameters in their semen Mm.
2: and
1: having daughters with PCOS. And so what dad was exposed to and how that creates the daughters and how it influences her. Um, I definitely have been seeing that. That's starting to come out. Mm. Um, There's lots of stuff that they're correlating that way, but did I misunderstand your question?
0: So that's just that's not a a trigenerational female 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 or or quad quad We're talking male to female issues here, then
1: male to female transference. And then we get you know definitive what's on the X chromosome. It's new research, so it's early days. I've only seen a handful of papers, but I'm obviously quite abreast of PCOS stuff at the moment. Mm. Um, But it's it's quite fascinating. It's very scary, but it's quite fascinating. And they're specifically looking at what's happening with the daughters. And there was some suggestion of, you know, um, is what are men doing actually making our women infertile? or well, their daughters infertile.
0: Okay, so but, that does lend back to a, a xenoestrogen type theory, doesn't it? Or, or a xeno, uh, let's say a persistent organic, or organochlorine pollutant.
1: Yes, because the theory was always that the women were the ones that could have a generational impact because... They're born with their eggs, you know, and the, the children are in their eggs and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Whereas with men, because they're generating new sperm, but they're obviously realizing more the damage to the testes um, and then how that's impacting things and whether or not they're actually not passing it out every 72 to 76 days.
0: Can you rescue the sperm or are we talking about damage to the actual um, fertility sure cells? Oh my well, God. they're not
1: sure. Yeah. I think you can rescue the sperm because I see it clinically all the time. But I do know that there are certainly men that you can't rescue it because, you know, perhaps they have a genetic mutation or they have something something higher order that has influenced their testicular development, um, which then can lean back to their mother, but that's another story. Um, but um, they're finding that the damage to the Satoly cells the recovery of um, the sperm production is potentially not as great as it could be. It's, Yeah. I think the environmental aspects we need to be very, very conscious around, and I don't think that we have—I don't think we have enough of an idea as to what is going to happen. I mean, if I just think about my short career in the sense of, you know, in the last twenty years and whatever, what have I seen? I'm pretty scared, and I'm quite nervous about my kids. What's mm. going to happen for them? Mm.
2: Um,
1: but you know, the diagnostics around PCOS—yes, it's been overdiagnosed, but I do think it has to be increasing. You know, like bring it back to PCO for a second. I, it has to be increasing. And I think that some of the environmental impact has to be a, a variable there.
0: I'm sorry to, to keep harping on about sperm, no, no, sperm quality, but it, it, like I know that I can ask you. So um, mm. the old theory um, of, uh, you know, population density may be affecting a pheromone production or something like that and maybe affecting fertility in that way. Is there mm. any, is there any, basis to this is there any juice to that theory or have we really moved on from that
1: i don't think there's enough substantiated evidence to it nothing that i've seen that's significantly conclusive and it certainly doesn't correlate with male quality of life studies or anything like that that i've seen do you know what i mean like yeah. i don't think that we're seeing like we don't even have enough proof around and reports do you know what I mean? To then be suggesting that the firm and production, like all that sort of stuff has changed as well.
0: When we're discussing your talk that you're going to be giving at the ATMS symposium in September, predicting mm. fertility with polycystic ovarian syndrome, what are the important factors looking at prediction of fertility?
1: I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about having you know appropriate diagnosis and appropriate facts and really making sure that women are aware that they don't have these extra five or ten years that we used to believe, Um, and then making sure that they have a really thorough workup. They know that it is PCOS if it is. I mean, so many times someone walks in and it's hyperlactin levels and they just haven't been properly assessed Mm. or something like that. Um, And then if it is, then working and navigating through the right treatment. And I think as well, you know, with prediction of fertility, it's, remembering that the goal is about normalizing and stabilizing the cycle, not just getting them pregnant because, you know, the PCOS woman has a much higher incidence of miscarriage, even late miscarriage, um, you know, 16, 18 weeks. She also has a higher incidence of stillbirth. Um, She's got all sorts of other complications, higher risk of gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's about making sure that it's not just about getting her pregnant. It's about her understanding what her true fertility is Um, what her true diagnosis is so that you can be strategic with treatment and then recognising that the more individualised the treatment, the faster the results now, like we were discussing earlier. And realistically, most PCOS women, you should be able to get their cycle sorted and pregnant and everything within the six months easily. And if you're not, then you've missed something. So I I think it's um, overly generous to continue to treat them how we may have in the past. Um, And I don't think PCOS women should be waiting a year or anything like that anymore.
0: I don't want to get into the situation of um, you know, seeming to be protocol-driven, because I hate that word. Um, of <laughs> But do you find any, let's say, particularly valuable herbs or nutrients, and what's their place in therapy with polycystic ovarian syndrome?
1: Probably the number one nutrient is zinc, um, and at the right dose.
0: Uh-huh. And zinc
1: comes across with all of the types of PCOS. So even if it's adrenal or if it's metabolic or whatever, zinc will regulate and normalise almost all of those pathways. And it's about the form of zinc that you're using, the dose that you're using, and the frequency that you're using. And I do think that we're all very zinc phobic. Um, I, I do know that with PCOS women, you do need to push the dose up quite high,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, monitor them of course, and you know continue to test their um, their their plasma zinc and serum copper and you know all the ratios and whatever. But you do need to make sure that the zinc status is optimised and maintained. Um, and they are definitely women where their zinc is extremely low in pregnancy and their copper is extremely high. Um, so you're going to need to monitor them the pregnancy, and you know just the gestational diabetes component that's common in a PCOS woman when she's pregnant is usually normalised if you get her zinc and copper sorted. Right. You don't have to jump into you know alpha lipoic and chromium and all the other bits and pieces. So for me, zinc is a fundamental. And then if you go into any of the SNPs, we know zinc is such a normalizing and regulating nutrient. Um, Magnesium, of course, it's pretty much, of course, for everybody, but certainly for the PCOS women for many different reasons. Um, But again, it it crosses over into all of the different etiologies. Um, Methylation cofactors, B vitamins, all of that sort of stuff absolutely have to be sorted and addressed. And then I tend to find that it gets much more specific. So then you're looking at, you know, in situations there might be the need for chromium, there might be the need for inositol, there might be the need for um, numerous herbs, cinnamon, gymnema, those sorts of things, or it might be all adrenaline related. It's just very independent, but every single PCOS woman will get zinc, all the methylation stuff sorted, and all the magnesium.
0: You mentioned, for instance, um, before a zinc to copper ratio. Like, do you yeah. use zinc as a uh, an antagonist, or do you tend to sort of look at zinc for its effect on hormones, like for instance, five alpha reductase?
1: Well, it depends on what's going on. I mean, so if the copper is through the roof, even before they've conceived, you know, like they've been under pill for a very long time. Um, and you need to get all that copper out of the body, then obviously I need to sort all that out first. I don't want to get copper toxicity. And, um, you know, you just dance that walk quite gently with molybdenum and, you know, right doses of zinc and everything like that. Mm -hmm. But um, then the zinc, you know, depending on the presentation and where it's needed, um, absolutely be using it in quite high doses. Yeah. It it tends to normalize everything.
0: And any caveats with that? Like, for instance, there's that 150 milligram sort of warning dose with regards to causing a copper deficiency long-term and, and potentially leading into cardiomyopathy, but that's... Well, look,
1: I don't think most people need 150 milligrams of zinc. I think it's more that they need the right form and you need oh. to look, explore the delivery methods of the zinc, um, but too many people are just still using, you know, amino acid chelate form or citrate form and not getting anywhere, mm. and I do think that, you know, the The deeper we dive into the SNP world, we will find some zinc receptor SNPs that will elucidate some of this for us. You know, and I I certainly see a correlation with vitamin A SNPs. You know, like some of my patients will have, like, there's the three main SNPs where there's the abnormalities. And for example, I've got one woman and she's homozygous for all three. And because her vitamin A SNPs are so deranged, her zinc is always stuffed. Right. So I think it's about trying to understand what's going on inside. Um, But I've certainly had many, many people over the years where um, it was just the form. You know, like they've come to me from other clinicians, been on 120 milligrams of zinc a day, and their plasma zinc is still six. And then you just change the form and they're sorted.
0: What about TCM herbs?
1: Again, it's very much about trying to ascertain what's going on for them. So the PCOS woman, if you look at it through the energetic lens, I tend to find they're quite cold. You know, their ovaries are freezing. There's an enormous amount of scar tissue on them from all of the follicles um, leaving the scars, essentially. Um, I get them doing ovarian massage uh, with rose oil or geranium oil. Occasionally, I get them to mix some cinnamon into it if they're, like, really cold. And then you use the Chinese herbal formulas to warm them up. Um, So, you know, a lot of our Western herbs in Chinese context can be beautiful, Um, you know, cinnamons and turmeric and, you know, all that sort of stuff, but Mm. you're really wanting to warm them. And I find that that's usually the most effective and then adding adrenal herbs if indicated or blood sugar regulating herbs if indicated as well.
0: Yeah. Forgive me if this is ignorant of TCM, but is the TCM way of looking at cold dissimilar from how we would look at cold Thermically, um, in Western medicine, like for instance, is exercise going to help in the energetics of the presentation?
1: There's two parts to that. So the you know the TCM language and the thermal language are a little bit different, mm. but it's more just the type of cold that you're dealing with um, in the TCM language. So I mean, is it a cold because it's stagnant and it's you know just blood not moving around the body properly type of cold, or is it a cold because it's damp? Um, You know, there's various types of cold and it's trying to work out what that is and then specify how you treat it. But exercise, you know, in the PCOS woman is actually quite interesting. So when you look at it through a research lens, everyone always says to the PCOS woman, go exercise, you'll fix your PCOS. They don't look at the body shape of the woman and they don't factor in her stress levels or anything like that. But we know that the overweight cortisol driven PCOS type of woman, if you tell her to exercise, it makes it worse. So you don't have her pumping weights at the gym and you don't have her trying to run and do boot camp at five in the morning and you don't have her doing anything like that. You get her doing yoga and stretching and moving her body and improving the blood flow around her body, but essentially not getting her heart rate up very high. Right. Whereas the thin woman with PCOS, she might be cold because she needs more body fat. So again, you don't want to get her aerobic capacity up too high, but you still want her to be exercising for blood to move around the body. And you just do that in conjunction with you know, saturated fat intake. And I'm doing a lot of, you know, with the thin PCOS women, I'm doing a lot of dermal application, you know, getting them to lather themselves in cocoa butter and shea butter and stuff like that. Because they don't want to eat that much. And then that's actually improving just their natural production of estrogens and progesterone and stuff like that.
0: What what will people be learning more about, about the practical things that they can implement by attending the ATMS symposium in September?
1: I think the symposium Oh look! Anyone that went to the endometriosis one will attest it was it was amazing. And I think probably one of the best things about the symposium is that you've got five really experienced clinicians and researchers there. So you've got um, you know like Professor Norman, who is anyone that is in the reproductive world knows Professor Norman knows his position in Fertility Society in um, the preconception unit of the Fertility Society of Australia. So he's very open minded to complementary medicine. Done enormous research in PCOS itself. He's headed the Adelaide Research Institute, like he's the Robinson Institute. He's phenomenal in how he works. Um, You know, then we've got the exercise physiologist professor. Um, I don't know him well. That's going to be really fascinating to understand his take Mm -hmm. on exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, Lara will be there, Lara Bryden, and her podcast was wonderful. And, you know, Lara's take on things, she's She's just so wonderful at organising information and making it translatable for the clinician to go. Oh, I can tackle this; it's yeah. fine. Um, Carolyn is an acupuncturist. She's a researcher at UWS as well. Sorry, it's now called Western Sydney as well um, through Nickham, and she's she's brilliant. I mean, she's a GP acupuncturist, and she's so she's lovely grounded. Yeah, yeah, she's just wonderful. And so, so knowledgeable. So she'll bring Chinese medicine in a way that is very accessible for anyone in you know, the medical community. It's, it's very interesting for me. Some people might not like it, but we'll see.
0: <laughs> I know people will be taking away some oh-my-God moments. You always do that. I hope so. So obviously we need to attend. How can people find out more about when it is, where it is, and how can they register?
1: Well, the wonderful Alex Middleton has put this one together again and it will. if you just jump online to atms.com.au and just, I think there's an events tab or something like that on their yeah. website. Um, it's going to be held in Sydney at UTS at this amazing function centre on Sunday 16th of September and it'll be a big day. I think it starts at like 8 in the morning so it'll be lots and lots of information.
0: Yeah. One last All question good. I have to ask, Leia, how's your PhD going? Tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Look, it's, I always say to people that the PhD is what I do for me. You know, like there are many things that we do in life and the PhD I'm purely doing just because I love it. It's it's a lot of work, but it's so rewarding. Uh, look, anyone that is considering doing a PhD, I really say go for it because it's just, it's such a wonderful way to challenge yourself and to get a lot of knowledge and it immerses you in all the different worlds and it gives you confidence in ways that you didn't actually anticipate you could acquire. But, you know, content-wise, it's exciting. I mean, I'm, I'm working with a phenomenal faculty, um, a phenomenal research group where they've identified these ovarian biomarkers. They haven't been actually bought by any company yet, so we're purely research phase, and it's exciting. You know, like every day we're learning something else, and the driver for why I did the PhD is being answered every day. You know, the I never want to have that woman again in my clinic where she's there and I tell her I can't help her. With fertility, and I think we're getting a lot more answers so that we can educate and empower women so that they can make decisions around their fertility. So uh, I'm loving it.
0: Leah Heckman, there are many reasons that I admire you. Um, Not the least of which is the utmost responsibility you hold of treating your patients and um, always looking out for their well-being. Um, indeed, you speak about those patients who are sitting on your shoulders. They, that responsibility doesn't end with you treating them, you still carry the responsibility of those treatment failures and that's what drives you to be able to um, you know, delve further and bring some more answers. Um, and indeed, I've got to say, bringing scientific validation to natural medicines. I, I can't thank you enough, our listeners I'm sure, if ever they've read any chapters of any of the books, indeed your book itself, will know what a dedicated and caring professional you are. Thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Thank you
1: so much Andrew, I really appreciate the
0: opportunity. This is FX Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast is brought to you by the ATMS, the Australian Traditional Medicine Society.